from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. And welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your weekly overview of everything important on planet Earth. I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Dukescath in the world of video games and Twitter, a.k.a. Scartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Each week I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, education, economics, hip-hop, music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started. A little bit better than dope is, a brand new kid to show biz, with knowledge I persevere, but find out do me a it's back to school time baby and you know what that means i'm going back to school i'm recording this on the 3rd of september at 9 a.m because i have no idea when i'll have time or energy to record stuff ever again i i started this reboot of the podcast at the beginning of the summer and it's been fairly easy during the summer to put one out every week or two weeks I don't know what that's going to be like when school starts. A lot of times when I'm away from school during the school year, uh, my time is like incredibly precious and every second must be spent in maximum recuperation mode sitting on the chair playing Xbox or gazing slack-jawed at Reddit or whatever it is. Uh, so I can't promise that this is going to come out with the same regularity you have come to enjoy over the past three months. I'm going to do my best, but I also have a lot of other stuff going on outside of school, so I'm going to have to see if I can juggle it all, which is a skill I've never really learned, actual juggling, but I've got multitask juggling down pretty good. Uh, (laughs) what else is going on? The, the Republican National Committee had its, uh, convention recently, and I, I said I wasn't going to cover much of the Democratic, or the Democrats and Republicans running for president in the United States, uh, but every week it seems that I've got some reason to break that, uh, uh, approach. So, I don't really want to call it a rule, because it's not a rule, but it's sort of a rule, you know? Anyway... Clint Eastwood gave this awesome speech. It was amazing. And I just want to play a... Actually, you know what? I'm going to play the whole thing for you now. Clint Eastwood talking to the RNC convention this week. Take a listen. I needed a new heel for my shoe. So I decided to go to Morganville, which is what they call Shelbyville in those days. So I tied an onion to my belt, which was the style at the time. Now, to take the ferry cost a nickel. And in those days, Nichols had pictures of bumblebees on them. Give me five bees for a quarter, you'd say. Now, where were we? Oh, yeah. The important thing was that I had an onion on my belt, which was a style at the time. They didn't have white onions because of the war. The only thing you could get was those big yellow ones. All right, let's talk about what's going on in the world. Starting with 10-year-old news. Uh, (laughs) Rachel Corey's death was an accident, Israeli judge rules. Of course it was an accident. How on earth could the guy driving the bulldozer uh, see her standing there with a bullhorn screaming into his face? It was an accident. He was multitasking. He was probably texting. That's what the Israeli government should totally do. They should say that the dude was texting while he was trying to demolish the Palestinian doctor's house. And he was like, I couldn't see her. I was trying to Twitter something. Twittered it. Hit it. He walked down the street just the other day. Uh, What are you talking about? Okay, Rachel Corey. Uh, Rachel Corey was a solidarity activist who uh, lived in Oregon, I think, Portland, Olympia, Washington, sorry. I knew it was the Pacific Northwest. Anyway, she went over to Israel and Palestine as part of the International Solidarity Movement, and she was in 2003, 16th of March, uh, trying to protect this Palestinian doctor's house that was being bulldozed by the, uh, the Israeli military, and the bulldozer ran over her and crushed her and she died and her parents are amazing people i've met them they're just absolutely astounding uh somebody wrote a play called my name is rachel Corey. i suppose the play was put together by her parents if i'm not mistaken because they took her journals and stuff and the emails that she had sent while she was there uh, leading up to her death 
not at the moment of her death, obviously. They didn't. Dude, the Israeli uh, uh, bulldozer dude should have been like, here, you want to tweet your parents something real quick? Anyway, uh, so there was a, the, the, her parents have been pushing for justice for 10 years, and they struck out again this week because the, an Israeli court ruled that his, her death was an accident. Uh, quote from the article now, there had been no fault in the internal Israeli military investigation clearing the driver of the bulldozer that crushed Corey to death in March 2003 of any blame. The judge said the driver had not seen the young American activist. And when you see, there are a lot of pictures taken. I don't, I don't know if there's video footage, but you can find pictures of her uh, at the moment and right afterwards. And it's just heartbreaking to see, first of all, her taking this stand, putting herself in harm's way in the same way that, you know, Dr. King and Gandhi and, and other activists of nonviolent direct action do. Um, including the Duchess sometimes, uh, you know, using themselves as trying to put it themselves in the gears of the machine. And uh, yeah, in this case, the gears of the machine said, we don't care about you, you're going to die. And so she did. And it's heartbreaking. And there's so many ways that you can tell well, how about this? I'm very skeptical of this notion it was an accident. I think that's, again, with this whole, uh, in, in the, the fallacy of empire's ineptitude, this whole notion, it's much easier to say, we had no idea what we were doing, uh, rather than saying, yes, we, she was in the way of, you know, our empirical designs. Whatever. Uh, the Israeli Defense Forces said the houses it targeted with bulldozers and shells were harboring militants or weapons or being used to conceal arms smuggling tunnels under the border. Human rights groups said the demolitions were collective punishment. Now notice those two things are not mutually exclusive. It's possible that these houses were being targeted because of, you know, hiding militants or whatever. Uh, but the point is that collective punishment is outlawed under the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It is verboten. We are never supposed to punish people collectively. It's it's not fair. That's the whole reason we established the uh, item in the Bill of Rights that says we're not we, we you can't make us um, board soldiers for the opposing army. It's just that's the basis of the whole thing. From 2000 to 2004, the Israeli military demolished about 1,700 homes in Rafah, leaving about 17,000 people homeless, according to the Israeli human rights organization B'Tselem. And as I say, Rachel Corey's parents have been really remarkable in their uh, courageous defiance of the official version of that story and the demands for justice. And um, yeah, the Rachel Corey obviously joins a lot of Palestinian nonviolent activists who have been trying for you know decades to take a stand against the Israeli occupation and uh, demand justice for the people of Palestine. Uh, there was another article in The Guardian which uh, talked about, it was an opinion piece, and it said the headline was, Rachel Corey Verdict Exposes Israeli Military Mindset. And uh, this is an excerpt of what this particular individual wrote. Here, I can even give you his name because it's just a click away. Once I click the thing, Chris McGreal, writing in The Guardian, said... Um, the difficulty lies in what then to call the Israeli army when it too at particular times and places has used indiscriminate killing and terror as a means of breaking Palestinian civilians. One of those places was Rafah in the north southern tip of the Gaza Strip where Rachel Corey was crushed by a military bulldozer nine years ago as she tried to stop the Israeli army going about its routine destruction of Palestinian homes. Later in the piece, the case laid bare the state of the collective Israeli military mind, which cast the definition of enemies so widely that children walking down the street were legitimate targets if they they crossed a red line that was invisible to everyone but the soldiers looking at it on their maps. The military gave itself a blanket protection by declaring southern Gaza a war zone, even though it was heavily populated by ordinary Palestinians, and set rules of engagement so broad that just about anyone was a target. End quote. Um, I will, again, we, we have to remind ourselves that this is exactly what the U.S. military is doing when it uses the drone strikes on suspe suspected militants in Pakistan, and then immediately reclassifies anybody who's anywhere near these suspected militants as being militants themselves. So therefore, the U.S. military, or the, it's not even the military, it's like the CIA doing these drone strikes, uh, can say, well, we're only targeting militants. And by their definitions, of course, that's true. Look, if I go into a shopping mall and I say, like, you're all terrorists, and I start shooting randomly, does that mean I'm shooting at terrorists? No. But that's the that's the thinking behind both the Israeli military and the U.S. Uh, secret drone strikes plans is that by changing and John Oliver did a recent thing that was awesome on the Daily Show about it. we changed it changing the definition of all these things is a way to pretend like we're changing the actual reality of them but they were not and it's not and it sucks and presente we love you Rachel Corey we will remember you and uh, all the nameless Palestinians who die as well. Meanwhile in 
it was Norway, right? Uh, Brevik, this this Brevik guy in. Hang on a second, because I don't want to get this wrong. I don't want to look like an idiot. You already look like an idiot, Piotrowski. Yeah, I know. Uh, right, Norway. You were right the first time. Believe in yourself. Um, okay, Anders Brevik got 21 years for killing 77 people. And some people in the United States were outraged and shocked and amazed and what? Uh, but the Atlantic had a very good piece called A Different Justice. Why Anders Brevik got only 21 years for killing 77 people? And... It, this is an excerpt from that article. Although Brevik will likely be in prison permanently, his sentence can be extended. 21 years really is the norm even for very violent crimes. The much-studied Norwegian system is built on something called restorative justice. Ding, 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 ding! Hey, Colleen Butler, if you're listening, check it out. Here's something that might be useful for you to use. Proponents of this system might argue that it emphasizes healing for the victims, for the society, and yes, for the criminal him or herself. In the Brevik trial, this meant giving every victim, survivors as well as the families of those killed, a direct voice. Victims were individually represented by 174 court-appointed lawyers. The court heard 77 autopsy reports, 77 descriptions of how Brevik had killed them, and 77 minute-long biographies, quote, voicing his or her unfulfilled ambitions and dreams, end quote. In an American-style retributive system, the trial is primarily about hearing and evaluating the case against the criminal. Norway does this too, but it also includes this restorative tool of giving space to victims, not as evidence, but to make the trial a forum for those victims to heal and to confront the man who had harmed them. The trial itself is about more than just proving or disproving guilt, but about exorcising the victim's suffering. Um, now, it, for me, it's I think it's tough to say which system is more fitting for a monstrous atrocity like Brevik. I, you know, I look at it and I think, you know, if ever there's a test of our ability to find humanity in even the worst people in the world, this is one of those tests. Can we recognize humanity in someone like Adolf Hitler or Osama bin Laden or, uh, you know, Oliver North or whatever it is? Uh, no, no, there's no equivalence there. I heard some conservative person going, well, how can you equate them? Anyway, um, but I would say this, even if you disagree that this particular crime deserves that kind of restorative approach, which I would caution people against saying that because the restorative approach, I think, is bound to be much more worthwhile for people who have suffered violent crime. Um, and I have been the victim of a violent crime. Um, the, the thing is this. Um, you should read a book called Forgiving the Dead Man Walking by Debbie Morris. It's an amazing book. Uh, she, and you know what, I'm going to make a note here in my show notes to put a link on that. You should definitely see the movie Dead Man Walking. It stars Sean Penn and um, uh, Susan Sarandon, and it's an amazing film, very powerful, very potent, uh, directed by Tim Robbins, and the book that it was based on by Sister Helen Prejean, you should definitely, you should also read that. It's called Dead Man Walking. The character in that movie was based on two, uh, com- it's a composite. Sean Penn's character is a composite of two people uh, who, who were guilty of murder and rape and stuff, and one of them was a guy named Robert Willie, who was the guy who abducted and raped and killed the boyfriend of Debbie Morris. Debbie Morris suffered for years with post-traumatic stress disorder and, and anxiety and stress and pain and suffering and trauma and all that stuff. Um, and when he was, when uh, Robert Willie was put to the electric chair, her boyfriend who had been murdered, his his father had this attitude of like, yeah, fry him and we're going to celebrate when he gets the chair. But Debbie Morris noticed that he wasn't getting any peace from that. He was just getting angrier and angrier. And and she makes the point that that, 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 bloodlust, that desire, the thirst for revenge, does not get satiated when the, the revenge happens. It, 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 it's, a, it's a cover system for something much deeper, and Debbie Morris realized that if she wanted to actually get past and to heal herself, she had to forgive Robert Willie. And the book, Forgiving the Dead Man Walking, is an amazing exploration of that whole journey and meeting Sister Helen Prejean and all this stuff and how the movie, you know, reawakened all of these nightmares that she'd had and all this other stuff. Um, but, so I'll say, but, okay, so, so that's the challenge is to say, can we find humanity in someone like Anders Breivik? Especially when he, even during the trial, he showed absolutely no remorse and he's still committed to this whole, like, we got to resist multiculturalism, blah, 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 and I should have killed more people, I think he said. So it's definitely a challenging question, and I'm not prepared to say, like, this is the best approach, that's the best approach. But I will say, for the types of crimes that constitute the vast majority of crimes in the United States, and probably elsewhere in the world, too, property crimes, nonviolent drug offenses, etc., there is no question about which approach I would vote for. And I would say, even in terms of violent crime, I would say that the restorative justice approach is 
it's the way to go. I mean, and I have been the victim of a violent crime. For those who don't know, I went to a public enemy concert when I was 14, maybe something like that. And this kid beat the snot out of me. And it was a horribly traumatic situation and all this other stuff. But, but, and I don't know what I would have wanted at the moment, but when I look back on that now, the main thing I feel is, uh, a sense of empathy for this kid because he probably, and I have no idea. I have no way of knowing anything about this kid's life. But my guess is that he was subject to the vast array of social pressures, probably poverty, police harassment on a regular basis, going to a horrible school, etc., etc., et uh, that so many young black males go through. And as a result, he probably had the kind of anger and rage and frustration building and backing up within him the way that um, a Bigger Thomas does in Native Son and the way that... Um, Walter Lee Younger has in A Raisin in the Sun and, and in all uh, these other examples we can see uh, and, and it's bound to come out somewhere and it was just like, you know, I think a restorative approach would have given me a chance instead of just saying, put him in jail because that's probably what he expected anyway, if we could have said like, look here's why that hurt me and, and, and you know, the, the restorative approach has a whole lot of elements to it, it's, it often gets dismissed as being like a touchy-feely new age approach to blah blah, but it's not it's a much more comprehensive thing and as Fanya Davis said when she was in Madison a few years ago, quote, healed people heal people. Harmed people harm people. Um, the New York Times also had a piece about the Brevik verdict and the sentence, uh, and this is an excerpt from that piece. Uh, Bjorn Magnus Ihler, who survived the Utoya shootings, said that Norway's treatment of Mr. Brevik was a sign of a fundamentally civilized nation. Quote, if he is deemed not to be dangerous anymore after 21 years, then he should be released, Mr. Ihler said. That's how it should work. That's staying true to our principles and the best evidence that he hasn't changed our society. What a notion. If only we had taken that same notion to heart that we have to stay true to what we really believe and value when the chips are down or else those principles don't mean anything. If only we had remembered that after 9-11, we could have avoided the Patriot Act. We could have avoided the, the massive um, incarceration and detention and torture of Arab Americans whose only crime was, uh, you know, being dark skinned and, and wearing a kufi or whatever. Um, yeah, so whatever. Uh, Stephen King wrote a piece in uh, the Daily Beast called "Tax Me for F's Sake," and he used he used the little pound symbol and the asterisk and the you know the percent sign. Uh, and again, this is what Warren Buffett has said. This is what um, uh, the woman from Oz who played Diane. Uh, I can never remember her name. Edie something. Um, anyway, the, a number of people, a number of very wealthy people have said we need higher taxes. And and the, the response from the conservative right, the free market, you know, Tea Party movement is, well, if you want to give more money to the government, you can just do that yourself. And their point, their point, my point is that we're not talking about individual contributions. We're not talking about charity uh, because that's not the solution here. Charity only goes so far. And this is what Stephen King says. What charitable one percenters can't do is assume responsibility, America's national responsibilities, the care of its sick and its poor, the education of its young, the repair of its failing infrastructure, the repayment of staggering war debts, war debts. Let's not forget a lot of the debt is coming from war. Charity from which the rich, uh, charity from the rich, can't fix global warming or lower the price of gasoline by one single red penny. That kind of salvation does not come from Mark Zuckerberg or Steve Ballmer saying, "Okay, I'll write a two million dollar bonus check to the IRS." That annoying responsibility stuff comes from three words that are anathema to Tea Partiers: United American Citizenry. Later on, uh, Mitt Romney has said, in effect, I'm rich and I don't apologize for it. No one wants you to, Mitt. What some of us want, uh, those who aren't blinded by a lot of bull stuff, persiflage thrown up to mask the idea that rich folks want to keep their damn money, is for you to acknowledge that you couldn't have made it in America without America. That you were fortunate enough to be born in a country where upward mobility is possible, a subject upon which Barack Obama can speak with the authority of experience, but where the channels making such upward mobility possible are being increasingly clogged. That, that it's not fair to ask the middle class to assume a disproportionate amount of the tax burden. Uh, and there's a great book by Barlett and Steele called America, What Went Wrong, which talks all about how this changed during the 80s, from uh, 70s and 80s, and you know even before, uh, about shifting of the tax burden. And uh, yeah, this notion, it's, tick, it's called kicking away the ladder. Uh, people make it to the top. And it's funny because Mitt Romney is even painting himself as a person like, land of opportunity, I made it coming up and anybody can make it and blah, blah, blah. And you know what? Look, even if we assume that any, everyone can make it, not everyone can make it, but even if we assume they can, then... 
the, the question is, how do they make it? They, it's not just because, well, there's no government in your way, and that's not true anywhere else on the planet, because there are places where there's much less government than the United States, and it doesn't have the same... You know, I mean, look, if we want to talk about upward mobility in the United States, first of all, we should look at where upward mobility is easiest. Where does it actually happen? And I dare say, if you do that research, you will find the United States is not actually the most upwardly mobile society on the planet. That's the myth we like to tell ourselves. Anyway, but, but even if we were, the question is, how does that happen? And the answer is, part of the answer is, that there are institutional supports there are ways for you to start your business without having to inherit a fortune from a parent. There are ways to get an education that don't crush you for debt for you know 20 years afterwards. But those things are being eroded. And so more and more people find it harder and harder to find the kind of success that Mitt Romney enjoyed or that you know Barack Obama enjoyed. And that's why some of us say government has a role and... I don't like giving the state power, but I also don't like the idea that uh, we can exist with, well, I mean, we could talk about, okay, the balance between corporate power and government power, blah, 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 but I'm not going to. I'm going to move on because I want to talk about this story about uh, Ohio miners say they were forced to attend Romney rally. Uh, Mitt Romney's been doing these big tours, and they've been doing rallies. And in one uh, in Ohio, uh, yeah, several miners at Murray Energy's Century Coal Mine in Bellisville, Ohio, contacted a nearby morning talk radio host, David Blumquist, over the last two weeks to say they were forced to attend an August 14th rally for Romney at the mine. Murray closed the mine the day of the rally, saying it was necessary for safety and security, then docked miners the day's pay. Asked by WWVA Radio's Blumquist about the allegations on Monday's show, Murray Chief Operating Officer Robert Moore said, quote, this is, a bril- I, this is one of those glorious things you read and you're like, I couldn't possibly have just read that. I must have read it wrong. Quote, attendance was mandatory, but no one was forced to attend the event. So there you go. Now, I should also point out that, uh, and this is true, look it up. Uh, Murray, the guy who runs Murray, Robert Murray, uh, Murray Energy. Robert Murray, uh, there's no definitive source on this, but if you ask people who work at Murray Energy places, they'll, everyone's heard it. And er, a lot of people believe it. I, I don't know. But the story is that Robert Murray, he was a coal miner, and he broke his back at one point. I mean, he's been in the in the mines. But at one point, he was on the porch of his house, and, he, and a squirrel came up and talked to him and said, you should start your own company. And so he did. So if that's true, and I'm willing to put the conditional here, if that's true then we can clearly see that Robert Murray is a lunatic. And if it's not, he's just being mean to his workers from some other realm of his mind. But as always, I want to end on a positive note. So I'm going to end with Shirley Sherrod, uh, who appeared on Smiley and West recently, and she's just an absolutely amazing woman. Uh, if you If the name sounds familiar, it's because a few years ago, she was giving this talk where she described a situation where she was in charge of trying to help farmers get help from the government. And there was this white farmer who was trying to get help from the government. And she described the thought process that went through her mind that had to do with feelings of frustration and, and a lack of sympathy that she felt just momentarily because her family had been subject to such incredible uh, white supremacist violence and her father had been killed and all this stuff. Uh, it's an amazing story if you go back and listen to her life story. But the point that she made in the speech was those things flashed through my mind for a moment and then they left and I realized here is a person who is struggling and I have a responsibility as another human to help this human being. So that was the whole n- nature of the speech that she gave. But this guy Andrew Breitbart took that out of context, put it on a website, it blew up, Fox News went off the handle, of course, and the Obama administration said, oh, you, you, you're you, a racist, we kick you out. And Obama apparently never apologized, and it's this whole big affair, it's just crazy, like there was no independent fact-checking, which I suppose we can't expect Andrew Breitbart to do the independent fact-checking, because he was all about, like, gotcha journalism, and like, nailing people, and trying to get people fired, and creating a buzz, never mind about what's true, uh, but it sucks, especially that the Obama administration never said, hey, uh, you know, what's the actual fact behind all of this? However, here's the amazing part. On Smiley and West, uh, you know, Andrew Breitbart died earlier this year, and it was kind of sudden. And they asked Shirley Shirai, what are your thoughts about Andrew Breitbart's passing recently? And she said, 
my prayers and love go out to his family. And again, this is one of those amazing grace moments. And I, I cried when I heard, um, De- when I read Debbie Morris's uh, Forgiving the Dead Man Walking when I was in the Orlando International Airport. I remember I was tearing up. I'm like, I look so stupid crying in the airport. Uh, but, you know, this is another one of those moments. I, I kind of lost a little bit when I was brushing my teeth listening to this because it was so powerful to hear her say, my prayers and love go out to his family. After this man had basically ruined her career, for her to say, like, you know, my prayers and love go out to his family is just an amazing example of mercy and beauty, and I think we should all aspire to be more Talking about economics now, uh, Reagan-appointed judge says deregulation advocates made a fundamental mistake. Oh, gee, you think so? I never would have guessed. Gee, what? hey, look, he's finally admitting what common sense told most of us a long time ago. <sighs> Richard Posner, a well-respected federal judge, said Thursday on Current TV that he no longer believed the financial industry should not be regulated. Quote, I was an advocate of the deregulation movement, and I made, along with other, a lot smarter people, made a fundamental mistake, which is that deregulation works fine in industries which do not pervade the economy and their consequences, he said. The financial industry undergirds the entire economy, and if it is made riskier by deregulation and collapses and widespread bankruptcies, the, uh, widespread bankruptcies, the entire economy freezes because it runs on credit, end quote. Posner, who was appointed to the 7th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals by President Ronald Reagan, is associated with a conservative Chicago School of Economics. And this is C.F. Uh, Alan Greenspan's flaw. He, at one point in a few years ago, Alan Greenspan went on, it was in 2008, he went, on, he went in front of Congress and he goes, I may have had a serious, it seems to me there's a serious flaw in my thinking. And in terms of, I mean, Alan Greenspan is the dude who was like, well, we don't need to regulate anything because capitalism takes care of itself. Markets are self-regulating. And now and he comes back years later, he's like, well, after seeing the apocalypse happen, it seems like maybe they're not self-regulating. And again, this is, look, this is one of those things, just like with the Iraq War, after the Iraq War started to go bad, all these conservatives and neoliberals came out of the woodwork saying, well, it was probably a bad idea. And I'm glad people like this admit this, you know, and, and, and you have industry insiders who, who come out and they change their mind. Oh, it was wrong. Okay, fine. Uh, and I'm glad that people like this say this. I'm glad Greenspan admitted that there was a flaw in his thinking. I'm glad that this Posner dude admits that, you know, deregulation was a stupid idea because it gives you people like me ammunition. Like, look, I'm not insane. There are conservatives who agree that this is a problem. But the, re- the reason why this makes me so angry is because whenever these people get TV time and press attention for saying these things, nobody ever says, uh, and by the way, there were a bunch of other people like Hajun Chang and, and Eve Smith and, and you know other people like that who, who have been saying this for years. Those people are still marginalized. They are still ignored. They are still dismissed as being cranky weirdos on the fringe of society, far left, blah, 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 whatever. When the Iraq war went sour and, and everybody started to realize, oh, wait, oh, there were no weapons of mass destruction. Oh, maybe we were all fooled by people who wanted the war to take place, whoever that may be. I, I said over and over to my students, look. I want people to admit that we were right, not because this is a, like a nyeh, 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 nyeh type of thing. That's not what I'm talking about. What I want people to recognize is we were right because we knew what we were talking about. And when we had seen the course of history repeating itself over and over again, and the reason why it's important to recognize we were right is because it's going to happen again. And we can prevent it from happening again if we listen to the people who know what they're talking about. The people who saw the Iraq War for being a bamboozled... Uh, wool over people's eyes, a hideous abdication of responsibility from the Congress, a pack of lies. Uh, Some of us saw it as a pack of lies from day one. And we were millions of us out in the streets and everyone just went, whatever, hippies, get a haircut. Um, it's, think of it this way. This is how I describe it to my students. If a bunch of people were standing around going, hey, maybe we should set fire to our clothes. That would be fun. And everyone else in the group started going, yeah, let's set fire to our clothes. That sounds awesome. And then there's a dude named Robert in the group who goes, um, that's not a good idea. I really don't recommend that you do that. And everyone goes, oh, whatever, Robert, set fire to our clothes. And they start lighting their foot clothes on fire, dousing themselves with gasoline. And then they went, ah, ah, we're on fire, burning, ah, pain, oh, suffering, oh. And then they go to the hospital and they're covered in burns and they're in the burn ward and everything hurts. And they're like, ah, God, that's so stupid. At that point, you should go, hey, 
Robert tried to warn us. He was right. We should listen to him in the future because he realized that that whole setting ourselves on fire thing was a bad idea. But that's not what happens. Instead, someone else in the group then goes, hey, let's drink a bunch of sulfuric acid. And again, people should go, hey, wait. Robert, what do you think about the drinking sulfuric acid thing? And Robert would go, that's a bad idea. And everyone would go, eh, I think I'll pass on the sulfuric acid thing this time. But that's not what happens. Instead, everyone goes, again, Robert tries and says, that's a bad idea. And everyone goes, whatever, Robert, glug, 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 ah, sulfuric acid, oh, I'm dying. Barclays makes 500 million pounds betting on the food crisis. I think this came to me from a listener, but I don't remember which one. So thank you, listener. Sorry, I don't remember who you are. Uh, probably Stu. Uh, yeah, Barclays has made as much as half a billion pounds in two years from speculating on food staples such as wheat and soya, prompting allegations that banks are profiting handsomely from the global food crisis. Now, hang on a second, leaving the article. Th- let me say this. That is not an allegation. That is an established fact that they are profiting handsomely from the global food crisis. Is that their intention? Are they manipulating prices in order to make the profit? That's a different question. There is no question that they are making a profit off the food crisis. And the people in these banks would say, oh, that's not our intention. We don't want that to happen. And and there are other people who say, well, in fact, the speculators provide an important counterbalance in terms of liquidity and blah, blah. And I don't really, I'll be honest, I don't understand all that stuff well enough to say whether that's hubbub or not. But... Um, there's no question that these banks are getting crazy paid off of this whole thing. So this is from The Independent. The extent of just one bank's involvement in agricultural markets agriculture uh, will add to concerns that food speculation could help push basic prices so high that they trigger a wave of riots in the world's poorest countries as staples drift out of their populations' reach. Later in the article, and this is where, again, there are certain things, when you look at the world of science, when you look at some kinds of research, when you look at you know macroeconomics and stuff, I'll admit, I have not done the kind of study that I, it would qualify me as an expert or anything like that. So the question is, who then do you trust to break it down for you? If you're not going to pretend to be an expert yourself, which most people should not, but you go on Reddit or other online forums and everybody's an expert, everybody knows exactly what they're talking about, and they can spout a lot of buzzwords and and research terminology that makes you go, well, I guess I don't understand what they're talking about, so I'm just stupid, I'll just accept their point of view. The question is, who will you look to for commentary? People who do live this stuff and are able to give a considered intelligent opinion. I'm going to listen to this guy. Oxfam's private sector advisor, Rob Nash, said, quote, the food market is becoming a playground for investors rather than a marketplace for farmers. The trend of big investors betting on food prices is transforming food into a financial asset while exacerbating the risk of price spikes that hit the poor the hardest, end quote. I, I don't know. I, I'm sorry. You can spout all of the economic terminology you want, At the end of the day, I'm going to trust this Oxfam dude to tell me how it's affecting uh, the poor people around the world. Because he works with them all the time. He watches the impacts and he watches how it moves from one part of the economy to the other. Um, Yeah, uh, Jason Gulliher sent me a piece from finance at yahoo.com. Uh, about an ex-stockbroker, uh, I realized most of what I did was bad for clients, so I quit. And there's this whole thing about it's sort of common for people to be in the uh, financial industry and then realize that a change is needed. And so here's the article says, One of those who changed is Josh Brown, a former stockbroker who now writes a well-read financial blog called The Reformed Broker. And I'll put the link in the show notes. He worked for 10 years in the retail broker industry during both boom and bust markets. When times are good and people are making money, the inherent conflicts in the business are masked, he said. But when the tide goes out, you find out who is swimming naked, Brown says, quoting Warren Buffett. Now here's a clip. I'm going to give you, there's also a video that goes along with this. I'm going to play a little bit of this clip here for you. And, and we were all essentially swimming naked. We were going from one stock to the next without very much regard in terms of whether or not that's advisable for most clients. The clients didn't seem to mind because their their P&Ls looked decent uh, to strong. And at the end of the day, in 2008, when that bull market goes away, all of the inherent flaws of the business become really obvious to me. Uh, On top of the fact, you're a retail broker, your job is to buy things with your client's money. That's it. When you're not doing that, they pull the money. They have something better to do. So in 2008, we would have meetings, where, and we had analysts that really cared about finding good stocks or whatever, but it wasn't smart to be buying stocks in 08. 
technically the markets were broken. Fundamentally, earnings were being chopped in half, estimates all over the place. From a macro perspective, it was insane to, to think it was a good time to invest. But again, that was what our job was. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's like telling a guy who, who's putting a roof on a house to stop putting roofs on house. That's what we do. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to be said about this. I just think it's interesting that, again, we get a point of view. And it reminds me of the uh, uh, Kevin Spacey's character in Margin Call. It's what you do, and it's, 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 it's a type of thing where th this is probably inherent to capitalism, where people who are selling a thing are not going to tell you what's wrong with it. When you put something up on Craigslist... If there's a problem with the thing, you're probably not going to start by advertising that problem. You might admit it when you have the person, you know, in looking at the product and trying to, you know, nail down the sale. You might say, now I got to tell you, it's this and that. Uh, but that's the nature of selling things is you're, you're going to emphasize the positive. Of course, duh. The problem comes when, again, this is about the role of government. The government has to, first of all, government has to know what's going on, which oftentimes they don't in a willful way. Because uh, the Securities Exchange Commission, the regulatory agencies are are intentionally defunded or uh, staffed with former lobbyists or whatever it is, so they intentionally look the other way. Or in the case of like BP and and Event, Event Horizon, Horizon Deepwater, whatever it was called, uh, you know they had the what stripper and cocaine parties and whatever it is, uh, and an inside job they talk about it as well. So the cocaine stripper thing, hey, that's a great way for industry to continue to chug along. Uh, but no, this whole thing about um, you know, government has to be the one who steps in and goes, I mean, this is why we have drug commercials that say, here are the side effects. Boom, 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 boom. Is there any way that GlaxoSmithKline Pharmaceutical would ever say, here are the possible negative side effects of this drug on their own? Of course not. The government has to say you need to tell people that they could get inverted eyelids when they take this pill. Otherwise, they would never talk about that stuff on the commercials. That's what the government should do with everything is force these companies to tell us what the risks are so we can make an informed decision. Because everybody talks about this personal responsibility thing. But personal responsibility can only be effectuated. That's not a word, is it? Affected? Whatever. Uh, personal responsibility can only really happen in a meaningful way if people have actual information about the stuff they're supposed to be responsible about. <sighs> Meanwhile, uh, there was a piece in, I think this is Rolling Stone. Yes, probably Matt Taibbi. I can never keep it straight, but I'm going to put my money. Hey, look, Matt Taibbi, I was right. What? I'm not insane. Uh, it's a very long piece, very interesting piece uh, called Greed and Debt, the True Story of Mitt Romney and Bain Capital. Uh, and the Daily Show also did a thing this week about they, they had, uh, well, we got an advanced cut of the uh, video from uh, Mitt Romney, you know, the biography video at the RNC, and I'm going to put uh, that on the show notes because it's funny. Uh, they did a great video about, you know, sort of a fake bio video of uh, Romney. Anyway, so Taibbi's piece is the actual story about Romney's up-and-coming thing. Uh, but And you should read it. It's an interesting piece. But the fascinating part for me was about... It was a quote from a guy from Cerberus Capital Management. And I've been in love with Cerberus ever since I first heard about them when they bought GM. Or Chrysler. Sorry, they bought Chrysler. And uh, they're... Because, okay, first of all, this is, uh, this is one of these... Um, Takeover firms, capital invest. I don't even know what you call it. Uh, they these are the companies that it's Richard Gere and Pretty Woman. They go, they buy companies, they break them up, they sell the parts, or they try to make the company more efficient. Office space. What is it you say you do here? Good luck with your firings, Bob. I hope they go really well. Uh, <laughs> so it's called Cerberus Capital Management. And every when I first heard that, I'm like, wow, one of these enormous capital, you know, speculation firms. They, they sat down and said, who should we name ourselves after? Let's see. The three-headed dog of demon spawn that guards the gates of hell. That's us. Yay. Let's name ourselves that. Uh, anyway, there's a quote from the CEO of Cerberus, Steve Feinberg, who's talking about how rare it is for someone like Mitt Romney, who is the head of Bain Capital for so many years, to then move on to government and to put so much of themselves out in the public sphere, because that's not what they do in general. And here's the quote. We try to hide religiously, he said. If anyone at Cerberus has his picture in the paper and a picture of his apartment, we will do more than fire that person, Feinberg told shareholders in 2007. We will kill him. The jail sentence will be worth it. So there you go.
Maggie Gyllenhaal, what are you doing? Are you on drugs, ma'am? I have to know. What the heck? Maggie Gyllenhaal is a great actress. I'm not going to say anything bad about her skills on the screen. However, she's apparently lost her mind because she's in this new movie called Won't Back Down. And it's, oh, God, it's all about this. Ah! Okay, let me just stop it, Piotrowski. Here's the headline, and this is from some news entertainment, DeseretNews.com, I don't even know. Maggie Gyllenhaal harbors high hopes for public education. In her new film, Won't Back Down, Gyllenhaal plays a mother who fights to improve the public school her daughter attends. The plot of Won't Back Down centers on parents and teachers teaming up to take over a failing school by invoking a trigger law. And in the school, the, sorry, coming out of the article now, the, the school is presented as the, the typical boogeyman of, of public schools, which is nobody cares about anything other than their own fat paychecks, and the kids are locked in closets for no reason, her daughter is boiled in oil, and I mean, all this stuff. Uh, and again, I don't want to sound like an apologist for bad public schools, but th- it's, it's this standard thing Hollywood loves to do of just showing these... You know, I remember when I was a kid, I used to love the movie Lean on Me. Morgan Freeman plays Joe Brown, the dude who walked around with the baseball bat. And and it was this it was this heart of darkness apocalypse now vision of the school where it's just like people just spraying Tech Nine fire all over the cafeteria and like stringing up the vice principals from their testicles or whatever. I mean, it was just chaos. And they were playing Welcome to the Jungle, and I you're gonna die. And it was and I remember when I was a kid, it's like oh my god, this is the most horrible thing ever. It doesn't matter what people do to make this better because it's so horrible. And and it's that whole Hollywood sensationalistic thing of, you know, there's no way anybody can solve this unless they're willing to go to that level and just crack skulls and all the rest of it. Um, so here's the quote from Gyllenhaal. That's the same thing they're doing in this movie. I guess for me, the movie is a little bit like a fairy tale. It's not ultra-realistic in style or even in terms of the story that it tells. It's meant to inspire. It's meant to inspire a conversation. I don't think it's necessarily meant to be a model of exactly how to change the educational system, but I think it's meant to be about the real truth that we can change things, that one person, two people can really change. I think it's our responsibility when we see things going on in our community and our lives that we believe are fundamentally not right or not functioning in the way they ought to be to try to do something about it, end quote. Yes, no one's going to argue with that, Maggie Gyllenhaal, but let me present a hypothetical allegory. Suppose that we had a situation where garbage... This, suppose the city said that we're only going to collect garbage every other week. In Madison, where I live, it's every week. Suppose they say we're going to collect garbage every other week. Suppose you then made a movie about that in which human-sized rats began roaming the city and clawing out the eyes of children while they sleep. And then it was like, hey, we need to band together to burn down the governor's mansion. And then we can get garbage collection back once a week. And they do all that stuff. And they burn down the governor's mansion. And, like, yeah, finally. and then there's the happy sunrise and there's no more rats. With, with that, And then you came out and you said, well, we just wanted to inspire people to say you can do something about a thing. For two things, one number one, it's not a fair portrayal of that garbage issue to show the rats calling out children's eyeballs. A and B, what do you do about the thing in the movie matters. So the question I would have for you, Maggie Gyllenhaal, is: Do you know what happens when a trigger law actually takes place? What is the nature of the trigger law to begin with? Who will run the school once it's been triggered? Private companies, that's who, like the ones running schools in Louisiana with the cubicles and the Jeebus records. I wrote this in The Profit Without Honors, okay? This piece I wrote in 2003, I think it was, a long time ago. Uh, I can post it. I posted it before. I'm not posting it again, man. Find it. Profit Without Honors. You'll find it. Against the Business Model of Education by Eric S. Piotrowski. It's on justtext.org. Just-text.org. The quote, the entire question of school choice rests on the assumption that private schools do a better job than public schools because of their market-based nature. When in fact, there is a wide variety of reasons why many private schools do better in public schools in poor neighborhoods or not. Uh, So I'm sorry, Maggie Gyllenhaal. I don't like it. I don't think that you uh, you're missing something. Let me just put it like this. If you do have high hopes for public education, if you believe in the nature of public education, that is the democratic impulse that took place for 100 years that said we owe every person in this country a high quality education for free. That's a beautiful notion. Now, we have not done a good job of delivering on that promise. 
in the same way we've not done a good job of delivering some of the other promises. And I agree that there are some fundamentally structural problems that keep public education from being great in areas where they're needed the most. However, this business model of reform, which includes the trigger law, which includes demonization of public schools in every media outlet we can get into, that this movie is one more example of that, and it really irritates me. And I haven't seen it, and I should see it before I critique it, but I'm an American. I don't do that sort of thing. Uh, th- this this movie... I'm sorry, Maggie Gyllenhaal, you're missing something here, okay? You're, I, I think you're, you're being used for the business model reform movement to make a fairy tale that will get people angry enough, but they will also be more willing to say, yeah, the trigger law, that will keep people from being strung up in closets. We don't want children being strung up in the closet, so we need the trigger law so we can have the democratic recourse. But it's it's not a fair a good way to do that. Because, as again, as Diane Ravitch has said, I've quoted this on the podcast before, the 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 public in, the public school is not the is not owned by what fifty one percent of whichever parents happen to be parents of that school at that moment in time. The public school belongs to everybody, and if a fifty one percent of parents in one school in one place at one time say we want to use this trigger to take the school away and hand it over to the private company, that's going to spell disaster probably for that school, and that's not a good idea. Now, to indicate I'm not totally against the idea of actors speaking out about schools, let me immediately move then to Tony Danza. Because Tony Danza did a very interesting thing. And a lot of people have given him a really hard time for this, but I actually will give him a lot of credit. Tony Danza did a reality TV show called Teacher, or Teach, I think. Teach, to- teach colon Tony Danza. And of course, as uh, Lewis Black pointed out, Teach Tony Danza, finally an agree I can get behind! Uh, yeah. Tony Danza is not going to come out of the womb as a gifted teacher. But I think the the beauty of this idea is that he's an everyman. He's a singer and a dance. He's an entertainer. So for him to say, I'm going to try teaching, I think makes a lot of sense. Let's see how the average schmo does in the classroom. And the movie, I watched the show several times, so I actually can talk about that show. Ha <laughs> Uh The show is very interesting because a lot of the stuff that he dealt with, I found myself nodding going, yeah, I just dealt with that this week. I know exactly what that's like. And it became an actual realistic portrayal of what it's like to be a teacher. And I love how people who criticize Tony Danza and this whole, and people were like, oh, it's just a publicity stunt. It's just reality TV and everyone knows how stupid reality TV is. And I agree with that. And and don't get me wrong, I recognize that the the show almost certainly selected certain scenes and moments in order to construct a narrative that is artificial at best and to uh, edit out the things that are more boring or mundane or awesome or, you know, cherry-picking the aha moments that students get when maybe they weren't really that excited about it. What, I, okay, fair enough. I know that reality TV isn't really real. Yes, I understand that. But I love how those same people will never say, oh, uh, uh, Boston Public... Well, we know that's fiction, but 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 again, the stories that get told in these programs and on these movies and in these books, they're so often they construct our thinking about education. So at least whatever else you say about this project of Tony Danza's, at the very least, we can say that this was a a, a relatively realistic portrayal. And I know because I'm a teacher of what it's like to be a teacher. Okay, so what did he learn? What's the takeaway moments from all of this? Here, the two things are these that he took away. Number one, kids have to want to learn. You cannot force someone to learn if they do not want to learn. A freaking men. And number two, the point that he makes later on, the thing is, uh, he says, um, the most important lessons that I ever taught my kids were things that were not in the official curriculum. And again, yes, I've gotten some, I've gotten actual letters from students who say, I didn't really absorb the whole thing about, you know, understanding theme in a novel or this or that. I can't tell you who invaded East Timor. But she said, I did watch you deal with this very difficult person in a way that was merciful and, and patient and loving. And that's helped me to understand how to be patient and loving and, and forgiving and all that. And and so, yeah, here's what one of the things that he wrote uh, in a piece for USA Weekend. Uh, we have to convince kids that despite the formidable obstacles they often face, it's imperative that they do well in school. As a society, we have to make it cool to be smart. And kids have to understand that it's their responsibility to do well, no matter who their teacher is or the quality of their school. The bottom line, kids need to want it. We can't want them to get an education more than they want it for themselves. Now, 
That said, I will step back and say that I think one of the most interesting challenges for me as a teacher, one that I actually relish, is to try to convince kids, here's why school is important. And I go through at the beginning of every semester, here's 10 reasons why you need to know how to write well, whether you're going to go to college or not. Um, and I believe, you know, when I was a student, I spent so much time stewing about this isn't actually important. This has nothing to do with the real world. I asked one of my math teachers one time, serious, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be a jerk. I really want to know when are we going to use this? And she went, <laughs> do your work. Now, as a teacher myself, I know that you can't always spend five minutes explaining the possible real-world applications of this particular lesson because you got to get through the lesson sometimes, which is why I created the I want an answer form because that answer that teacher gave me was no answer at all. And it was not okay that she said that. And I will not going to say her name on this podcast, but you know, you know who you are, ma'am. And you know, that was wrong to say that to me. I've never forgotten it. That's why I never did well in math. Uh, no, that's not the reason I never did well in math. I never did well in math because I suck at math. It's not. And that's the other thing. You can never let a student say that I'm not good at this subject. And don't get me wrong, I got better at math over the years, but there came a point, especially when I tried to understand Emmy Noether's rings conception, when I had to say, you know what, I'm sorry, my brain is not built for this. Or at the very least, over the last 20 years, I have trained my brain into the nebulous, uh, ethereal world of literary analysis where there is no one answer, man, except apparently that I'm a moron for not liking Don DeLillo's white noise. Uh, But that's another story. Um... Yeah, whatever. Moving on, because I forgot where my original point was there. <laughs> Moving on! No excuses in the culture of shame. There's an article in Alternet, which is one of those sources which I think is good, but it's clearly on the left side of the political spectrum, and sometimes people look at that, like the Huffington Post, and they're like, ah, you know, I can't trust that. It's not mainstream. It's fringe. Blah, blah, whatever. But I don't care. Uh, in this case, it's a really good uh, article, and you should definitely read it. Um... And, and they had this very interesting perspective from somebody who uh, went from a public school to a charter school. And it, I don't know if it was private or public, but um, when it comes to charter schools, a lot of times it doesn't matter because they, they exist sort of outside the framework of public education. You can turn away students. You can do this. You can do that. Um, so here's an excerpt from that article. A charter school teacher describes her work environment. Quote, when the kids show growth on interim assessments and standardized test benchmarks, they attribute their culture of discipline to the reason they are successful when really the kids are cherry picked and less than 10% of the population is special needs. Our success on those tests has nothing to do with the culture of discipline. We don't have kids that don't want to be in school or kids who want to be in vocational programs. And I don't want to dismiss the growth some teachers make because learning time is definitely being maximized in my classroom. I literally have zero disruptions from the students. End quote from that part of the article. And this is what I have to emphasize. Look, because this is where the essential tension comes in. That democratic demand that we talked about a moment ago we t- i always hated when teachers did that and we yesterday we talked about we didn't talk about anything you talked for 30 minutes about this topic and we wrote down notes don't use we talked when it was you talking okay so get that out of your system yes tell me about your maza. uh no here's the thing that democratic process the demand of we every child deserves a very good education that conflicts with what the business class wants to get from schools, which is trained workers who, as I mentioned last week or a couple of weeks ago, uh, they, they, most of the fastest growing jobs in the U.S. in the coming 10, 15 years are not going to require a high, even a high school diploma. That what they need is in a service economy doesn't need people who can think critically. The service economy needs people who can punch buttons on the computer at McDonald's. They need people who will shut up and do what they're told. So there is a fundamental conflict here between whether we're going to provide an actual education to everybody or whether we are going to uh, train some of the kids and, uh, you know, give other kids this high qualification, you know, uh, succeeding assessment benchmark thing. Um and I, I, you know, look, I think that there should be more specialization earlier on in school. And that's at the sort of the heart when you get to the high school level. Obviously, there's a different set of questions. Uh, anyway, later in the article, it says, 
as well. No excuses environments embrace school cultures, modes of teaching, and student conditions that are explicitly unlike the experiences of the privileged administrators and teachers implementing policy. Similar to Bill Gates, Arne Duncan, and others endorsing school reform, unlike their own experiences and the experiences they provide for their children. End quote. So that's something I and I gave the there's a quote article I talked about it on a previous podcast about uh, Bill Gates talking about the, what made his school great. And it had nothing to do with the school reforms that he's championing now that he is a wealthy philanthropist trying to make schools different. No, what made his school great was the same thing we all loved about our favorite teachers in classrooms, which is personalized instruction, one-on-one time, uh, smaller classes, uh, you know, that, that's kind of like, what do you want to learn? Go out and learn it. That's the kind of stuff that really makes a difference for kids, not kill and drill 50 kids to a classroom, just make sure they do well on the test. Kill all humans. Kill all humans. Must kill all humans. Bender, wake up! <clears throat> I was having the most wonderful dream. I think you were in it. Uh, uh, listen, Bender, uh, uh, where's your bathroom? Bath what? Bathroom. What room? Bathroom. What what? Ah, never mind. Mm. Hey, sexy mama. Want to kill all humans? All right, in the Killer Robots file this week, uh, we have a Robot Hall of Fame voting survey online. I'm pretty sure this was sent by Jason. And and I think it's because there's a robot here named Jason and he just wanted to make sure Jason got in the Robot Hall of Fame. Anyway, uh, you can vote for which robots you think ought to be in the Hall of Fame. And there's all sorts of different categories, industrial and pop culture and all this other stuff. Um, So go and check that out and vote for which robots you think should be in the Hall of Fame. And I was chagrined by how few of those robots I had ever heard of. I'm like, I call myself an expert on killer robots. I don't know anything about those robots that are out there. They're all going to get us. And I'm not adequately preparing people for it. Meanwhile, there was a uh, something from the Harvard website news.harvard.edu. I don't know what would you call it? A news blog from Harvard uh called Merging the Biological and Electronic. How very interesting. Harvard scientists have created a type of cyborg tissue for the first time by embedding a three-dimensional network of functional biocompatible nanoscale wires into engineered human tissues. Quote, the current methods we have for monitoring or interacting with living systems are limited, said Lieber, one of the researchers. We can use electrodes to measure activity in cells or tissue, but that damages them. With this new technology, for the first time, we can work at the same scale as the unit of biological system without interrupting it. Ultimately, this is about merging tissue with electronics in a way that it becomes difficult to determine where the tissue ends and where the electronics begin. Dun, dun, dun! This is how it stars people, man. Soon, dude. Deus Ex was not a possibility. That was a warning. It's going to happen, dude. And I would love to have Duchess's take on this. I should have asked her to comment in preparation for this syncast, but I didn't. So you have to wait to hear what she says later because she's got a PhD in biochemistry and uh, she teaches anatomy and stuff. So I'd love to see what she thinks about this whole thing. So, hey, Duchess, if you listen to this, check out this article from news.harvard.edu and tell me what you think about the potential for inserting electronic stuff into our faces because apparently that's what it's going to be about. Let's talk about hip hop. Uh This week I want to talk to you about EPMD, not only because the E stands for Eric, Eric and Parrish making dollars, which obviously is awesome because they're like, you know, dudes, like me, that's like my name. There weren't a lot of rappers in the 80s and 90s named Eric. Actually, there were a few, but uh, it was cool. No, most of them didn't say, my name is Eric, because that wasn't the coolest name. My name is Daryl, my name is Joseph, whatever. Uh, Yeah, anyway. EPMD, Eric and Parrish Making Dollars, they, they uh, were big in the late 80s, and they had, um, their first album was called Strictly Business, and I will play you an excerpt from the title track of that, uh, Strictly Business, Strictly Business. <laughs> what a strange thing. Um, and the, 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 their music was awesome. They did You Gotta Chill, which is in Barbershop. They did um, they did some comeback stuff. They split up for a while. They put out a couple solo albums. They did some getting back together stuff. Uh, each of their albums had the word business in it. So Strictly Business was the first one. Second one was... Um, I don't remember what the second one was called. Something Business. They had another one called uh, 
Business Never Personal. Uh, their reunion album was called Back in Business, et cetera, et cetera. I think you get the trend, right? Um, in 2004, I wrote about the cover of Strictly Business because uh, it's a very interesting cover. Uh, and it had to do with the digital boom bap that we saw the rise of sort of digital music making at the same time as hip hop became uh, mature and, and uh, self-aware. And so I wrote this in 2004. Remember the cover of Strictly Business? They put themselves in the studio in front of some computers while Run DMC were in old burnt-out buildings, Eric B. and Rakim were lounging in front of money and cars, LL Cool J was b-boying in front of his mansion, his in quote marks. Idiotic Steve Martin dance song notwithstanding, Strictly Business was a solid record, and it stands the test of time, even as it sings the praises of electronics' influence over rap. Indeed, the two worlds seem to have an intriguing symbiotic relationship. Plenty of DJs these days talk about how Craftwork influenced them, and many electronic artists affirm a lifelong love of Public Enemy. Uh, so that's just one of the reasons why I think Strictly Business is a fascinating album. Uh, the other thing that's very interesting to note about Strictly Business is that it did a really good job in a way that Prince Paul would do later on with Three Feet High and Rising, and a lot of other producers over the years would do as well. Uh, Hank Shockley, I think, in the Bomb Squad with Public Enemy, I think, Terminator X is a good example of this too, of fusing a lot of different styles of music into the hip-hop aesthetic. And in the same way that we have uh, Adrian Veidt at the end of Watchmen recommending that people really keep a close on the dub movement coming out of Jamaica, uh, we saw with EPMD and then and, and we saw with Turntablist later on, DJ Shadow and you know DJ Crush and lots of other examples of people really mixing in all sorts of stuff. I think Strictly Business was a bellwether moment for this whole trend of expertly mixing in uh, stuff like, you know, Time Keeps on Slipping, Steve Miller, and, and uh, Jungle Boogie, and we had uh, the, I Shot the Sheriff, as you'll hear in Strictly Business. Let me shut up and play it, and I can sort of babble on more if I really need to later on. To the master or the empty rap goddess No joke on the word, sorry to be modest I knew I was the man with the master plan To make you wiggle with jiggle like gelatin Just think while I sing and to the bring structure Don't sleep on the E You see something might rupture It don't take time for me to blow your mind It take a second to wreck it because you're dumb and blind So just lounge Cause you an MC climbers on the circus EPMD is in town Total chaos no mass confusion Rhyme so hypnotizing On the cause and illusion Like a magician He draws a rabbit Out of hat, son I draw more Like a 44 magnet MC3 Stop looking, listen and try to I would love to just play The whole song But I'm not gonna do that To you people Cause I know you're busy And so am I Uh... The other thing I'll mention about EPMD's style is that they were so good at passing the mic back and forth between their two very different styles. And I think one of the things that I'm saddest about in hip-hop these days is that that sort of individualism on the track is so important, but we see so little of it. It seems like everybody wants to do the same kind of flow, and everybody's voices are supposed to sound the same now, too. And everybody's kind of mean-mugging, it's supposed to sound... But Eric Parrish didn't sound like that. And I'll point out that Cool G Rap didn't sound like that either. If you listen to Rag to Rich, you sound sounds like this. So you know, who hears this? Cool G rapping polos back again. It, it seems like somebody who has that vocal style will be laughed out now. And a lot of times people made fun of it. Oh, you sound too white. You sound too wussy. You sound not the. You don't sound this enough. You don't sound that enough. And EPMD was one of those groups that said, "Look, this is who we are, and we're coming with it, and you can deal with it." And they were awesome because they knew they were awesome. Well, among other reasons, that's why they're awesome. So yeah, EPMD Strictly Business is easily their best album, and they have this crazy song called the Steve Martin, where it was one of those things for a while. Every rapper was trying to do their own dance and get big and famous for their dance. Even Run DMC did it. Jam Master J has this abominable verse on pause. It's probably the worst thing Jam Master J ever did, where he tried to do a dance. It's called the pause. Combine the fox trot, hop, and it's... Oh, God, just no, don't. So Steve Martin was like that. Like, you do the dance from the jerk. And it was just ridiculous. But it's one of those things, kind of like, you know, the... Uh, Buttermilk Biscuits rap from Sir Mix-a-Lot back in the day, which was so absurd and silly and fun and funny. And it was on the same album as something like You Got to Chill, Strictly Business, whatever. And that's what made it beautiful. Because it was like, look, we're not afraid to, you know, poke fun at ourselves. And that's something that 
it seems like so many artists these days are never willing to do. And that's stupid and wrong and dumb. So, yeah, what's up with that? Um, the last thing I'll say about Strictly Business, I was looking for the YouTube clip to post on the show notes. And one of the top comments is this. If aliens ever invade Earth, this will be our anthem to let them know what's up. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Stop repenting because the end of this near. But don't panic, you can't function if you live in a fear. Pay attention, you gotta listen to hear. We don't need another quote of the week. That's a quote of the week right there. Thank you, YouTube commenter. Uh, but no, I do have a, a quote of the week, and this was one that I saw this week, and I was like, that, I'm skeptical of that. And then I went to find the source, and I found the source. So what? Carl Sagan, uh, 1934 to 1996, was an American astronomer, astrophysicist, and host of the popular TV program Cosmos. In memory of Neil Armstrong, I came across an interesting quote recently from Sagan's 1994 book, Pale Blue Dot, about the moon landing. Quote, For me, the most ironic token of that moment in history is the plaque signed by President Richard M. Nixon that Apollo 11 took to the moon. It reads, We came in peace for all mankind. As the United States was dropping 7.5 megatons of conventional explosives on small nations in Southeast Asia, we congratulated ourselves on our humanity. We would harm no one on a lifeless rock. All right, that's it, people. Show notes and links to everything in this week's podcast are on my blog, Didactic Synapse, fbesp.org slash synapse. My website is The Floating Brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, fbesp.org, with links to music I've made and fiction I've written and multimedia and lots of other stuff. Shoutouts this week go to Jason for the robot stuff and Turtle502 for retweeting some things and Phil Olson for inviting me to bake up some virtual pizza. If you haven't been to virtual pizza, you should totally check it out. It's a great podcast, lots of fun, diverse stuff, interviews with people, and me talking about the room. Oh, boy. I don't have a lot of time to edit this thing, so I apologize if there are dumb things I forgot to cut out. I don't know what to tell you. I'm a very busy man. Deal with Listen, it. I don't have time to play with the phone here. I got a lot of stuff I got to get done. Thanks for listening, people. Please get in touch with feedback or questions. I can be reached at esp at fbesp.org, or you can go to my website and put comments in the shout box or comment on the forum posts or any of that other stuff. That's it. I'm going to stop talking now. <laughs> Didactic Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Ribonucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful. I have to do two podcasts today. I just recorded this one, and i got to do the Veteran Gamers later today. I'm going to be wiped out and exhausted for school tomorrow. Fortunately, it's only a half day, so whatever. Who cares? Oh, and next week we're going to do a quote from Sun Rock.